is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are talking about the 2020 album from Warbringer, Weapons of Tomorrow. Mm, indeed, this was your choice. It and was. I, I I saw you, didn't I see you elsewhere sort of say that this, for you, this was a contender for album of the year? It was a contender for album of the year, and I think I ended last year with Havoc as my album of the year, but in going in really deep diving on this album like this this album it could have been a one in one a sort of uh situation right. i think was that the havoc album that we did Fine. it was the havoc album that we did yeah and i had yeah. spent so much time with it that i think this album not that it got short shrift but it just didn't i didn't spend as much time with it and i i knew right. already i really liked the album but that's why and so you know selfishly a lot of times for for this show if there's an album that like i really want to spend time with because I know that I already really like it. Having it be the focus of an episode is like another excuse to be like, okay, now I'm really diving in. <laughs> yeah, well, why not? You know, hey, it's our show. Do what we want. Uh, um, uh, I'll just do some quick, uh, f- well, not really follow-up, but sort of before we start talking about the the band and the record then and the last episode. So we have a couple of new patrons since the last episode, and they are uh, Kelly Knight and somebody called Dixie Wrecked. I don't know if that's a real name or a made-up name. I'm not sure. But regardless, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for becoming patrons. Um, And I also want to give a plug to uh, a relatively new listener, but a very old friend of mine, Chuck Beebe, artist extraordinaire. Yes. Who has worked in animation and TV and uh, comics and what have you for many years. Uh, Is uh, He's an Eisner award-winning artist. I mean, like, you know, proper, seriously talented artist is Chuck and a lovely man. But he is also a huge metal fan. I remember the San Diego Comic-Con where he and I first met. Somebody had said to him that I was a heavy metal fan. And he, the minute we met, he went, oh, so you're the metal guy. And then immediately started like hammering me about black his favorite black metal bands and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, dude. <laughs> that is awesome. Like, you know, I think you're a bit more intense than me about this uh, this stuff. He's really into his metal. And he has... Just made, as you do, a solo black metal album based or inspired by, I should say, the video game Hollow Knight. Yep. Um, and the album, the band and album are both called Nosk of the Void, he's called himself. Uh, and you can you can see it here, it's, I should say, at noskofthevoid.com, um, where you can get it from Bandcamp and I think maybe even stream it. Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I had no idea that Chuck was a musician or indeed a vocalist. Um, so, uh, yeah, the man really does have many, many talents. And, yeah, it's really good. It, you know, you should go and give it a listen. It's not it's not sort of, sh- you know, shrieky cradle style uh, black metal. It's very much kind of the atmospheric side of things. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. I've actually been listening to it this week. And funnily enough, I had started playing um, the game. I just forgot the name of the game. Hollow Knight. Hollow Knight. I just started playing Hollow Knight because the it's been on my pile of shame forever. And I can't remember <laughs> if it became part of Xbox Game Pass or not, or maybe I picked it up in a sale or something like that. But I just started playing it because I had heard people compare parts of it to like Dark Souls, which is obviously one of my all-time favorites. And so I just started playing it and then uh, saw this week that you posted that, so I was listening to it. And it's good. I mean, I'm obviously not the biggest black metal fan but i feel like i've grown 
to appreciate it more through the course of us, just all the different bands that people talk about, you mm. know, in our Facebook group and everything else. So, uh, so I'm enjoying it and it's actually kind of fueling my desire to make more progress in the game. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I heard about it because Chuck and I are part of a, a community of, you know, just creators and people in the, uh, movie, TV, comics business and what have you. And he just mentioned it there. And I said, oh, I'll, uh, I'll plug it on the podcast. And I thought, oh, I'll post it on the group as well. Uh, and then the next thing I know, I saw that he'd joined the group and he's probably listening to this episode right now. So hello, Chuck. Uh, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> I don't think he knew about the podcast before. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's a good album. It's, uh, and it's always fun to, you know, these sort of conceptual musical projects, I think are always fun uh, just because you can kind of, you can get into them that way. You can approach them through the concept as much as the music. I um, love that. And yeah, being a just a story nerd to begin with, I love the idea of concept albums. I It's kind of amazing to me how like, how sort of like the ratio of well-executed ones to the ratio of like attempts <laughs> is so far apart, but it's because it's such an saying. ambitious like thought like and it's funny because it actually ties into the album that we're going to talk about today because when i first listened to this album when you look at the cover which i love because they they kind of the the sort of uh futuristic soldiers on the cover one of them kind of reminds me a little bit of the cobra bat soldiers from gi joe and like the the android soldiers and uh so i love that but there's a theme to this album but it's not a concept album and when i first listened to it in my head, even when there there's no hint of something being a concept album or or even having a major theme, I'm always writing that story in my head as I listen to it and trying to fit songs into like this overall narrative and find connections between the songs and stuff like that. And so I was really doing that with this album. And then it was in uh, reading some interviews and also watching a, a documentary about the album that there's a clear theme here that's evident in many of the songs, but it is not overall a concept album. The songs don't connect uh, to one another, although there are some that that I think thematically connect really well. Right, but like you say, it's more about theme than concept. I think that's often true of, you know, there are plenty of metal albums where that's the case. Um, But without, as you say, without an actual concept. I mean, I think of, we tend to think of concept albums as either being having a story like in the case of you know uh something like operation mindcrime where it's you're literally a story uh telling a story throughout the album or at least where all the songs are about the same thing and make references to each other uh and i'm thinking there of something like um marillion's early albums which aren't really concept in the sense of telling a story but they do literally make references to the same characters throughout different songs and there are lyrics that tie back to previous songs and you know bits of melody that tie into other you know you hear repeated like motifs throughout the album and stuff and so i think of those as concept albums even though they're not telling and you know a pure what we think of as a, a narrative per se but they are still very much conceptual, I think. But to go and to go back to to Chuck's uh, album that he just put out, I love the idea. Also, having been a lifelong gamer, of something being inspired by right and inspiring yeah. a, a project in a whole new medium, uh, because of the effect that a game had on you or a story had on you or something like that. I I, I absolutely love that. 
And so uh, that is just uh, super cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I did that, um, if you remember, a couple of years ago. Was it a couple? Maybe in three years ago now. The Christ. Neuromancer album? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I did that uh, Neuromancer-inspired album, which was the same sort of thing. You know, it's not, uh, obviously, it's not official or anything, but uh, but yeah, it was just, it, it was inspired by the book, because I love that book so much, and it just kind of, I felt that the music reflected the atmosphere. And I will say that that's a great album and people should go pick it up if they haven't picked it up already. Um, oh, bless you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't actually played Hollow Knight, so I don't know if this album of Chuck's is telling the same story as the game or if it is more that kind of just inspired by the, you know, the atmosphere and the mood of the game. Yeah, there's definitely a mood to the game. And I definitely can see the parallels to sort of the Souls universe in, in that sort of thing. And it's not a handholdy game at all, which is another parallel to uh, the souls games like you mm. it's the kind of game where i already feel like i'm either gonna just give in to the need to just kind of find things as i go and not worry about it or one of those games where you like have a guide open next to you while you're <laughs> while you're kind of playing it of like okay if i want to be as efficient as possible with my time i want to go here and here and here and here and so um but i definitely or see in my that. case both <laughs> like have the guide open but still die a lot <laughs> yeah well that's always my approach anyways is that uh it's uh i'm i'm not uh, i wouldn't say i'm a great gamer i would say i'm an avid gamer but right. the, but those yeah, two yeah. things are not <laughs> one does not equate to the other yeah enthusiasm does not necessarily equal skill for sure absolutely that's my approach to my approach to music as well uh <laughs> So, uh, last episode was, oh, it was our Christmas episode, wasn't it? It was the one we put out, uh, did we, was it between Christmas and New Year? I think we released it. Or was it just before Christmas? Uh, it was December 22nd, our Beast Wars album. Oh, right. Just was, before uh, Christmas, yeah. Just before yeah. Christmas. And, uh, man, lots of conversation about this. So let me just pull a few comments from our Facebook page here. And again, just a plug for our Facebook group. If you have Facebook and you listen to the show, Go check out the Facebook group. Awesome conversations, people constantly sharing new music, um, and then obviously a lot of feedback about specific episodes of the show. So uh, Simon said, I've been enjoying this album every day since it was picked from the draw. I can't wait to hear what you both think about this one. Um, Let's see. (laughs) Brian Bibb, this was kind of funny. He said, it's interesting. I thought we were doing The Death of All Things, their third album. This one is good and a bit more raw, I think. I can't wait to hear what you guys think about it. To which you replied, um, you nominated this album. Yeah, it was it was Brian's nomination, and he misremembered which album he nominated. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I could totally see myself doing that with a Megadeth album. Like, oh, it's interesting that you chose this one, but, um, you know, I also really like this one. Uh, I would have recommended this one, but no, you didn't. You literally didn't. Right, this is literally the one that you asked for. Uh, let's see. Todd said, this was a pleasant surprise for me. The name on the album cover had me expecting power metal, but instead I got something that sounded more like pre nevermind grunge metal. It's mm. an interesting one. Uh, Tortoise said, I too am interested, but opposite thoughts. I couldn't make it past song three, too sludgy and slow black label society esque, which I thought was a super interesting, uh, comment because I can see some black label society in the beast war stuff. But I lean more towards the Black Label Society stuff. So I definitely think there's a there's a pretty wide gap between those two yeah. bands there. Like Black Label Society is like just enough sludge for me. 
uh, especially like the early stuff like Sonic Brew and Stronger Than Death. Like there's just enough sludge for me there. Um, but then he picks up the pace and and there's a lot of, you know, screaming solos and all that kind of stuff. But interesting that that um, kind of went in the other direction for Tordeth. Is it really sludge, though, on that? I mean, I'm not as familiar with Black Level Society as uh, I you, would say the or first... I'm sure many of our listeners. It's To me, it's more kind of, I guess it depends how you define sludge, because the Black Label Society stuff that I've heard, it is groovy. And you know, that comparison with Beast Wars, I can absolutely see. It's got that sort of, you know, the groove and the swing. But it's it's more that it's fuzzy. It's all kind of like that fuzzy, overdriven tone and slightly loose you know, yeah. it's not clean, well, precise playing. And to me, that's not really sludge. Agreed. That's more just kind of What I, know, I would say to that, fuzzy though, metal. is that their first album, Sonic Brew, I feel like uh, definitely gets really sludgy. Like, there's his version of okay. No More Tears on it, which the first time I heard it, I was like, good God, what is that? Um. That was actually the first Black Label Society song I think I heard. And I was just like, holy crap. Um, <laughs> I think No More Tears is on that one. But yeah, the early, so I would say earlier stuff leans more sludgy, but no, probably not in like the, um, in terms of the genre and like bands that you would immediately think of. But I think like for me, that's a great example of it kind of leans that way sometimes. And that's like just enough for me. And I would tie that back to when we talk about Warbringer today, there's enough. Uh, black metal and death metal in Warbringer. That's like just enough for me, but but right, but it's right. built but around you would a core never of call thrash. Them a death metal band exactly. Yeah, yeah, but it's built around that core of thrash. And for me, that's like the perfect amount. And so, like the the I would say there's some dials of black label that go into sludgy, but uh, hmm. it's gotten more groovy over the years. I think. Uh, let's see. Where do we have? Oh, Phil said uh, this album does less than nothing for me. That's a shocker. Uh, he said, the more I listen to sludge slash stoner metal, the less I like it. Unlike Brian and Anthony, there is no entry for me into any of this. This is just grating and irritating to my brain. I could barely get through it once. Tell us how you really feel, Phil. Yeah. We're not sure <laughs> if you liked it or didn't like it. Uh, I can see people having a re- – because I never know. Like When people listen to the album for an episode, from what I've seen from our listeners so far, there are people who – uh, listen to it after they listen to our episode. Um, there are yeah, people who yeah. kind of listen to the episode and then stop and listen to songs along the way, which I think is an interesting way to uh, listen to that. And then there are people who, of course, listen to it before the episode and they they treat it as quote unquote homework before the next episode. And I always find that interesting, but I never know like how much time people spend with the album because for our purposes, like when I'm prepping for a show, like I've listened to it a ton and Beast oh, yeah, Wars, you and I listen to it loads. Yeah. 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 And, but, but Beast Wars is a good example job. of a, of an album that it took a lot of work to get into. And I know we talked <laughs> well, about I think that. We both the show. said that on the show, didn't we? Yeah. 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 But that's an album. Like, even if I listened to it a couple times, maybe even three times, like it, it, it took me a while to find my way into that. So I can totally see how with any of the albums that we talk about on the show, um, except of course for like eighties awesome albums like Dokken and stuff like that. Like those grab you the first time around. But I can totally see how people might bounce off of uh off of some stuff. Uh let's see who we have here. Uh Damien said, So listening to Beast Wars reminded me of a band uh that my band played with in Las Vegas about a decade or so called White Rhino. White Rhino was also on tour 
uh, but sounded like Beast Wars with the added energy of Motorhead. So that's interesting. I had not heard of White Rhino, and I don't know if anybody tracked them down. Um, we got a couple more Black Label Society uh, parallels drawn in here. Uh, JD said, I found this to be an okay album, but it's not something I'll be coming back to. I quite like stoner music, but I am more of a doom stoner guy, though I am into some sludge stoner like Electric Wizard and Bongzilla as well. He said, here, though, things veer into uh, veer too far into a grungy direction for me. I'm one of those people who got bored with denim vests when denim vests were swapped out for flannel shirts. So the Seattle influence is a big turnoff. <laughs> um the more do- see, for me, the Seattle influence like helps it. I think you know, I was, I have no problem with, I had no problem with grunge. Uh, you know, I mean, I had issues with some of the bands who were clearly just metal bands being labeled as mm. grunge, but that's all down to you know marketing and labels and all that shit. Just in terms of the music and stuff, I was, uh, I was a big fan of. I thought that I felt that grunge kind of re-energized a lot of the metal scene. Because it was starting to get a bit, feel a bit tired towards the end of the eighties for me. Um, I was definitely which, uh, in JD's camp, um, right? And and I know that's the thing. I know that there are those two camps, and I know you, you know, you loved your the the late eighties stuff and what have you. So I I know it's not a universal uh, reaction at all. I totally understand, and I know people who had the same reaction who were like, "Yeah, I'm not into this." Um, I have even thought for, though for me it felt exciting much to some chagrin I'm sure of some of our listeners I've thought of like you know what maybe I'll do a whole volume where I just focus on grunge albums like just <laughs> like <laughs> because I do I've come back around now to want to explore that genre further but my visceral reaction to it, it at the time when when grunge sort of knocked everything else out of the way was just that I am I like nerdy technical metal, right? And this was the exact opposite of that. Yeah, and grunge so, was very much from the sort of punk school of yeah, just play whatever you can, right? And so that that's where I really kind of struggled. And then obviously, a lot of my favorite bands were, you know, uh, imploding before my eyes as the as the scene totally changed. But uh, yeah, we could talk about that for a couple hours. Uh, Kenneth said, yeah. "Back to Beast Wars. This is not for me at all." Uh, from the first trad metal riff, I knew I wasn't going to have a good time here. And then the vocals came in on the first listen. I just turned the album off. I made a joke about it sounding like a, the singer had a stroke, but especially on the first song, I think it's a fair comment. He just sounds really drunk on the rest, possibly the worst diction I've heard in music. Uh, he, and then in parentheses, that wasn't <laughs> goblin thrash or a death growl. That's offensive, <laughs> sir. Goblin thrash is what, uh, is is right in my wheelhouse the thing is he's not wrong though we said this on the episode the first time that i heard those vocals i had a similar quarter kind of reaction you know to it sounded like the guy's it's like hang are there any words in here yeah um i mean it's a choice yeah it really is yeah but I think that's the thing. You have to understand, well, okay, he's doing this deliberately, you know, because he's not if, – if you are doing sort of goblin thrash, black metal, growl, whatever, sometimes it is genuinely difficult to pull that tone off with diction. That's not the case with the style of Beast Wars. You know, he could articulate clearly if he really wanted to and clearly chooses not to. So, uh, yeah, I think you've got to respect that it is a choice. Now, you may not like it, but it is obviously a choice. And so, from my perspective, I was like, okay, well, why? <laughs> like, why has he done this? Right. Why is he singing in this way? Uh, and that was what led into, obviously, finding out about the whole sort of 
shamanistic tendencies and, yeah. and that sort of thing, you know, which, uh, again, was an entry point. Uh, and, and Stuart talks about this as well. He says, I like, I like Caius a lot, and I like Soundgarden, especially the early albums like Ultra Mega, uh, which to me was the closest to this album in music and vocals in some ways. So why am I a bit meh on this album? It could be the vocal style, I think. I, it just seemed a bit awkward, a bit off to me, I guess. Uh, it's a bit like Cathedral. They should be right in my wheelhouse, but Lee Dorian's vocals just put me off them. And yet uh, Martin Walkier in Sabbath doesn't have any doesn't have that effect, although I knew I know his style does alienate a lot of people, all subjective opinions. He says, you know, we all have them, they all vary, and they are all valid. So yeah, I think this is another one, which not just for this particular type of metal, I feel like so often our discussion of whether people kind of immediately click in to an album or immediately hit a wall with an album comes to the vocals. That's yeah, so, so often where things come down to is like the, the vocal style, you know, love the music, hate the vocals, love the vocals, hate the music. It, it always uh, seems to come down to that. And the funny thing is that I think I replied as well. It's saying to that comment like that. I actually feel the same way about Lee Dorian and Martin Walkier. Uh, I, you know, cathedrals music is great. Dorian's vocals. I live with them because I like the music but they are, they, you know, they're not great. Uh, they don't sort of, he can't quite pull off what he's trying to do. Whereas Walkier can. I think that's one of the reasons why I am more favorable towards him, you know, as we did on the, when we did the Skyclad album, you know, Walkier's range is limited. There's no question about that. But he doesn't try to stray outside it. You know, he just sticks to what he knows he can do really, really well. Um, and so I think, that's one of the reasons why it works better than when Dorian came away from the death growl and started trying to do sort of something closer to a Sabbath style vocals and he just couldn't pull it off. Uh, we'll wrap up with, with Andrew's comment and he had a long comment here, so you can go and sort of read the whole thing. But he said, uh, he starts with so much to say, I may have to split this up a little, uh, but he said, I really, I'm really glad you guys persevered with this album it certainly does reward it. As Anthony says, there is a lot more going on than is initially apparent, and repeat listenings reveal lots of little flourishes. I also find that the structure of the songs becomes more engaging. That repeating lyric is played with as uh, the repeating lyric is played with as songs progress. Hyde sings lines differently. The music changes. I like so many of the that so many of the songs don't finish anything like where they started. Uh, and he said, as for Hyde's vocal style, I love it. Over the course of their albums, he actually shows quite a lot of versatility for a to from a totally clean sung track. Uh, check out Call of Time on the album Blood Becomes Fire. He said, and then there's a cracked fragility to it that just drips raw emotion. I'm a fan of broken voices. He said, I'm a massive Tom Waits fan or unusual vocal styles. So where he goes with his singing is right up my street. So interesting contrast there as far as like where the vocals hit for him. And uh, yeah, that album made for a lot of great discussion and I'm glad yeah, we did it. That Tom that's, Waits comparison is really good one. Actually. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and that's it for our comments on that one. But but jump in there. If you're, if you're catching up on episodes, jump in and let us know what you think about that album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the URL for the group is facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Nice and easy. Um, oh, I just remembered, actually, there was one other thing that I wanted to mention before we get into the, the main episode today, and that was I, for Christmas, I was given a copy of uh, the book Overkill, The Untold Story of Motorhead, written by Joel McIver, one of the guys who uh, does the Dead Rock Stars podcast with Mick Wall, uh, and a you know, long-time music journalist. 
uh, and bass player, uh, I believe. Um, and it's pretty good. It's pretty good. There's, it's one of those, it reminded me actually of uh, Rex Brown's book. Now, Rex Brown's book is an autobio, what's that called? A hundred percent proof, absolute truth or something like that. Uh, and that's an autobio. You know, that's one of those books where he's clearly just had loads, done loads of interviews yep. with a ghostwriter who has then written them out as if Rex was writing the book. Um, whereas the, the Motorhead book is, uh, compiled from obviously like historical research, but then also loads and loads of interviews that Lemmy and the band did over the years, both with McIver and, you know, with other journalists. Um, and it's more of a sort of compilation of those things going through the chronologically through the band, uh, over the years. But there was, it, the reason I, that it felt a bit similar was that there was nothing in it that I think would persuade somebody who wasn't already a fan of the band that this was an interesting thing to read about. But if you are a fan of the band, it's really, really interesting. And there's a lot of stuff in there that you may not have heard before, uh, you know, and that may be sort of new insights for you. Uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that it's a great music book that even if you don't like Motorhead, you should go out and, and read. But if you do, like Motorhead, or if you're interested in, you know, how they came to be and Lemmy as a character, then I would definitely recommend it. It was written while he was still alive. It was written in 2010, I think. So all of the core band members at that time were still alive. And of course, now they're all dead um, from the original days, early days of Motorhead, I mean, um, which makes, you know, it, that can be a bit jarring at times because obviously he's talking about things in the present tense. But still, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I only finished it like a week or so ago. and. Uh, yeah, definitely worth a read if you're a fan. I will definitely want to check it out. And I do want to check out Rex Brown's book, too. I haven't read that one yet either. But um, Yeah, that's quite old now. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, Vinny was still alive uh, when that was written um, because they weren't talking. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was, you know, I thought um, I saw yeah. something recently about him saying that he wasn't thrilled with some of the stuff that made it into that book. I can believe that because honestly, there are parts of that book where I'm like, I mean, there are parts of that book where he's clearly trying to be diplomatic, where he is obviously sort of not, uh, not being quite as forthright as he probably could be about certain situations and, you know, sort of events within the band. But there were also moments where he is quite you know, happy to slag off certain yeah. members, other members of the band, uh, including Vinny in places. And it's clear that him and Vinny got along, but that he was also really disappointed with some of the things that Vinny had done post Pantera's breakup. Uh, and I wonder if maybe now he regrets having those on yeah. the record, obviously now that Vinny's dead, but you know, if they're true, they're true. Yeah. It's always interesting too, though, like for, especially for bands where like, at some point, like they get back together or the, the person comes back in the band or something, because from a journalistic standpoint, like every music news outlet wants to dig into the rift, right? Yeah. What broke the band apart and what, and I, I see that. And this is, if you've got your bingo card, this is your second Megadeth reference for this episode so far, <laughs> but damned if a week doesn't go by where I don't see a story about someone asking Dave Ellefson about when he left the band in the lawsuit that he had against Dave Mustaine literally every week they, I it's can't read an article talk about. Yeah. It's unbelievable, dude. Like I can't. And even in his book, uh, Ellefson doesn't 
he's been super diplomatic about that the whole time. Um, probably partially because like Mustaine is easy enough to set off where I feel like that could go in the wrong direction. Like again, quickly, even though they're back together in the band, but it's like, man, they, that's gotta be brutal. Like the band wants to move forward and people just want to pick at that scab, like every single interview, every single time. And it's just wild to me. It's like, let, let people move forward for crying out loud. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it, this happens in all genres as well. You know, I mentioned Marillion earlier. For years, years, Marillion kept being asked in interviews if they would ever reunite with Fish. Uh, you know, like even when it got to the point that the replacement singer had been in the band longer than Fish Dude. ever had, you know, twice as long as Fish ever had. Um, it's, yeah, when there's, as you say, when there's a rift, when there's, especially if it gets legal and sort of rancorous, then yeah, the press just can't leave it alone, can they? No, I mean the John the John Bush Anthrax stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. You know the fact that people still b- bring that stuff up to John Bush, even though you know he's put out two or three albums with Armored Saints since you know since coming off of. Uh, but the whole time he was in Anthrax for a longer period than Joey Belladonna, he's he had to deal with that. Todd Latour yeah. for Queensrÿche has to deal with that with the whole Jeff Tate thing. It's like man. Well, and uh, Motorhead, I mean, that's actually touched on in that book that, uh, you know, like Mickey D had, by 2010, he had already been the longest serving drummer in Motorhead by quite some margin. He had been the drummer for longer than anybody else had ever been the drummer. And yet people would always still ask whether Filthy was coming back or whether they would do a reunion with Fast Eddie, who was, you know, only in the band for three albums or something. It's like... It's tough, man. Yeah, it's, and and the that theme, just, as you say, they want to pick at the scab. That theme ties into, and the fans are obviously part of that too. Whenever they get a chance to to ask questions, especially now through social media and stuff, and and that theme ties to the band that we're going to talk about today too, who has had quite a few lineup changes. Oh, have they? Okay, well, beautiful segue. Please take us into uh, Warbringer then. Tell us, because I confess, I I listened to the album a lot, but I didn't do a lot of research into the band for this, just because I, I've had quite a lot going on i'm afraid sure. in the last couple well, of months and i didn't have time to sit down and sort of you know do a day's worth of watching videos and, and reading interviews and stuff so yeah tell us all about it boy was this the gift that kept on giving i'll tell you because um warbringer is a band that i came to with their most recent album which is the album that we're going to talk about today which uh is uh weapons of tomorrow it's their sixth studio album it was released in april of 2020 this band it, it it's like a treasure trove for me like <laughs> it is i'm so like on the one hand like sad that i i didn't like this band was formed in 2004 so i'm sad that i haven't been on the warbringer bandwagon for so long um, mm. I partially blame our listeners of this podcast, and I feel like they have for not telling you about them. <laughs> I feel like they've let me down in in a, a big way, and I'm just going to say, like, as we talk about Warbringer today, this is exactly the type of band that I love. If so, if I'm missing bands like this that have been around, and uh, you haven't heard me talk, like, for the love of Pete, let me know. <laughs> because, like, digging back through the history of Warbringer is like, uh, I feel like I've gotten real, like, Warbringer and Havoc, to me, are very Megadeth-esque in terms of, like, what they bring that really resonates with me. 
And as Megadeth are getting towards the you know latter part of their career at this point, even though we're awaiting a new album from them, it is like that next like who is the band or bands that are going to carry me through like this next chapter of my musical fandom sort of thing. And boy, Warbringer is one that is absolutely in that conversation. So started in 2004, six studio albums. Uh, the, the longtime members of this band, the, the sort of mainstays, the veterans at this point, John Keeble, lead vocals, 2004 to present. He's been the mainstay through all of this. Uh, Adam Carroll, who is their rhythm guitar player, uh, was there for uh, a period of years between 2007 and 2013. And then, uh, or, or rather, uh, he played drums at one point, but he's been there for a good chunk of time. Carlos Cruz has been around for the most part since 2011, but then left the band briefly and then came back in 2015. Um, he is the drummer now, which we'll talk about in a second, Anthony, because of the video that you shared with me, which was absolutely freaking amazing. Um, but he's also a big part of their songwriting unit. And then the uh, lead guitar player, Chase Becker, has been around since 2016. Chase Bryant, uh, who plays bass, has been around since 2018. So I believe this was his first album that he played on. But they've had a lot of lineup changes over the years. The turning point for the band lineup-wise seems like it was in 2014, when John Lowe, who was their lead guitar player, who had been there since the beginning, left the band. And so from what I gather from their history, there was a a period of time in 2014 where it looked like the band might not move forward because at that time, Carlos Cruz also left the band and he had been around for uh, about three or four years at that point. And so there was a real sort of, are we going to move forward? And then they, they did, and they had like some temporary members, uh, but then Carlos Cruz came back into the band. And so it feels like, and I think uh, John Keevil alluded to, in one of his interviews that this is like the last two albums have been like version 2.0 of this band, like that it's starting to, to Mm -hmm. sort of come together and, and this is sort of where they're going. And, um, but they've had a lot of members over the past several years, but they've put out six studio albums and I've seen their name a billion times. Like I've seen them on bills. I've seen them, um, you know, their names at festivals and stuff, never seen them live. Uh, which I'm really looking forward to seeing them live when when the world opens back up at some point. But um, this new album, again, came out in April, and there's so many good things to dig into with this album. So you, Anthony, shared with me a video of Carlos playing the drums to, I believe it was uh, the third track on the album, Crush Beneath the Tracks. Crush Beneath the Tracks, that's right. Which yeah. was incredible. So if you like drum play-alongs, we'll link that in the show notes. But there's also a full documentary that came along with this album, and it's called The Science of Thrash. So right there, you've already hooked me. Because it, because if you remember, one of the things that I love about Megadeth, especially the, the how technical I, side, yeah, yep, yeah. they were called the world's state of the art speed metal band. That was the tagline for Megadeth back in the Peace Cells, um, you know, uh, so far so good, so what era of Megadeth, and that was how I always thought about them, and that's how I and so. What's cool about this documentary, The Science of Thrash, and and I'll pick out pieces of it as we go through because they literally break down each song on the album, their whole approach to making music, to lyrically how they approach it, to uh, putting different components together for songs. Um, John Keevil said time and time again, you know, we wrote this album with the intent of having uh, 
layers to it that you could just dig into. You could hear something different every time you come to it and, and for, you know, for, for years. And you know, that's what I love about uh, digging into albums. It's like picking out the baseline for this one or the drums for this one Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, As far as interviews go, uh, there's an interesting conversation about how this band gets characterized because obviously they get thrown into the thrash category, especially like nineties thrash or retro thrash, like a lot. And so in an interview in 2020 around this album, uh, Kiva was saying, you know, I think, I think we're just a thrash metal band, but you might call us on the extreme metal end of it because there's a lot, we have a lot of early nineties death and black metal in there. And so that's the stuff that straight up didn't exist in the original wave of thrash metal. So it's almost not, he's basically saying like a lot of times we get, we get sort of put in this, you know, category of like rehashing. 90s thrash but some of the stuff that we're doing like wasn't part of that and so the fact that we're constantly getting stuffed in this category kind of puts a little chip on our shoulder about you know how we approach our music Uh, he said it's almost not an influence that they could have had in the way that uh we do what we're able to do in sort of synthesizing a lot of that early stuff into what we're doing now he said, a lot of times I think the terms that get thrown around are just an excuse for lazy journalism and a way to avoid actually addressing the songs and having to to write about the songs on an individual level. And I found that fascinating, right? Because there is this shorthand, and we talked about it last episode with when I got nerdy about schemas and neuroscience and stuff like that. But it, there is this shorthand that we use when we talk about the type of music that a particular band you know, puts out or an album embodies or something like that. And it's got to be frustrating for bands that like feel like they're more than one thing to constantly be sort of put into one category. Um, And that's a problem that's existed forever, right? It has. And I mean, I, I think that's true when I sympathize on the other hand, when they do, when they're not incorporating those bits of death or black metal, they really do just sound like, and I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but they do sound like a 1980s thrash heyday band. I was amazed that they were formed so recently. I thought that they were a 19... When I first heard this album, I thought, oh, they're a 1980s band who are still going now. Uh, but clearly, you know, that's not the case. And, I mean, like I say, that's not meant to be dismissive or pejorative. I can respect doing something that is kind of full-on pastiche without any irony. And there's no, you know, they're not winking at the camera. There's no sort of comedy part of this. They clearly love this music and they're going to play it. And I can absolutely respect that. But it is, it really is a pastiche of like late 80s, early 90s thrash. Uh, when they're not incorporating those other elements. So it's a little, I find it a little disingenuous to complain that people make that comparison because it's it's there. It's absolutely there. Yes, there is more to it than that. Yes, they do have those other elements, but you can't deny that the straight thrash bits really do sound like straight traditional thrash. Yeah. And I don't think he's like, I haven't seen him in interview after interview being like, I can't fucking believe that people call us, you know, this type of band. But he, he was saying in this interview, you know, I do have a bit of a resentment uh, in the fact that I feel like there's a large segment of of the journalistic community that basically refuses to look at us as our own entity 
because they're so right. stuck on these categorizations. And I think that's that, right? Is okay, that yeah, you're, that's you're trying yeah. to, and especially like listening to some of their previous albums and how their sound has evolved to where they are now. I would say this is their, there's elements of this album. And he talks about this in the documentary where they're doing things that they haven't done before. And so that whole, like, this is version 2.0 of this band. I think they are, they're in that period of their musical journey where their sound has uh, continued to to keep the elements that sort of people knew them for, but really started to evolve as well. And um, I think that's really interesting. And it's hard to do that when the first sentence of the review is going to be, the newest album from Thrash, from you know <laughs> Retro Thrash retro Bender and Warbringer yeah, yeah. is uh, this thing, and he's like, "Fuck, dude, we did, we're yeah, doing new fair, stuff on this album. Like, give us a break, man." Um, I also what found are the out- chances, by the way, of two band members both being called Chase? I mean, it's not that common a name, is it? I don't think so. It's just like that blows my mind looking at that. Um, I just wanted to ask which one is which out of the guitarists because I know I, on the couple of videos that I did manage to watch. There's one who is very traditional, long hair, flying V, uh, you know, sort of like a yeah. million miles an hour uh, guitarist. And then there's another one who is very, very modern metal hipster, short hair. So the short haired guy, type, you know, the short haired guy is Adam Carroll, who is who is more of a veteran in the band. Right. right. Um, and I think it's Chase Becker that is the lead guitar player who is the long haired, like, you know, guitar God looking guy. He's your blistering solo. Yeah, guy. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But interestingly, the documentary that I watched features the three veterans. It features John Keeble, it features Adam Carroll, and it features Carlos Cruz. Now, Carlos Cruz is the drummer, but he's also one of the primary songwriters and composers in the band. And so in this documentary, as they're breaking down each song, he is playing a lot of the riffs that he created for some of these songs. And oh, cool. it's, it, dude, it's fascinating. Like they, they just go through how some of these songs come together, how, um, you know, they took this riff over here, but then they wanted to go in a completely different direction for like the back half of the song and and what they were trying to accomplish and stuff. And it's exactly the type of like nerdy putting. Yeah, that the, sounds like something I would, I'd like, would really enjoy watching. Totally, to dude. Send me the link and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, definitely, it's awesome. And um, so, a couple more things from interviews. Uh, one of the things that that has been happening in the band is that back in 2014, John Keeble went uh, to school at Cal State U Northbridge to study history. And he just like was studying history and, and getting his degree during the time that they were uh, prepping and recording this new album. And so a lot of the songs on this album are uh, infused with like yeah. historical war references and, and things like that. Yeah. You can tell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, and when you hear him talk about, how he approaches songs lyrically and thematically he's he's a nerd about it and i love it like i'm there for it you know like he's it's exactly the type of of stuff that i absolutely love and so um that was kind of interesting he did an ama on reddit and one of the things that was funny is there was a, a question about hey have you ever talked to the old guitar player and you guys going to get back together and it's like there's inevitably that question you know as he goes through yeah, yeah. but um there was a couple things that that came out of that Reddit AMA that I liked. One said, uh, uh, somebody asked, "I just started a band with some good musicians, and we want to go far." My question is, "What is your you know best piece of advice?" Which is a constant question, right? And um, his response was, "Work really hard. Don't tolerate people who aren't as serious as you are." 
from a culture and e- form a culture and ethos in your own band where everybody is dependable, believes in the mission, and has a mus- in the musical vision and is able to collaborate rather than fight over it. And I read that after mm. I had watched the documentary, and it was pretty awesome to see in the documentary how the three of them are all contributing to songs, whether it's I had a riff and I brought it in and I kind of, and then we kind of, you know, uh, broke it down and worked it out and made it into a song or I had lyrics that I wanted to do. And I had a riff in my head. There's one part where, uh, Kivo is basically saying, you know, I came in and I, I sung the riff and said, this is what, I, this is what I think that we <laughs> should do on this song. And then they made a riff out of it. And, and it's, absolutely perfect like it, it it came out exactly um there's a song when we talk about uh heart of darkness where the the sort of uh rolling bass line that starts like he he basically showed the bass player like apocalypse now and a couple of other movies that have like long meandering river scenes and said make your bass line like this make your bass line uh-huh. like this river and uh and so they like i love that they get like super nerdy about it that's that that hits me right in the Megadeth, you know, as far as like the, those early <laughs> albums of like that whole state of the art speed metal band, you know, the science of thrash. Like I do, I do sort of love that. And so, so, you know, overall, again, not having known a lot about this band sort of coming into it, it feels like that 2014 point in time was the real turning point for the band where it almost just ceased to exist. And then now things have not only sort of gotten back on track, but you have a lineup that has, you know, three core veterans in it and they're all contributing to the songwriting and they're all sort of working together. And the last two albums are sort of them uh, solidifying this version of the band sort of moving forward. And so I, I I think based on what I hear in this album, I I want that core to stick together and Mm -hmm. see, you know, sort of what they do next. But I'm just kind of blown away that I didn't, know a lot about this band before and they've been around since 2004 i mean that's, i'm that, amazed as that's well, 17 because, yeah, when, years dude right and, and when i heard this album for the first time i mean christ not even hearing the album when i saw the album art for the first time i was like oh yeah this is a band that brian likes yeah oh well, for sure right it's total <laughs> like absolutely um and I love that they can fit very firmly in that sort of uh late 80s early 90s thrash uh, scene, but they're also bringing in some stuff that I do feel is more uh, just different and modern, yeah, and, yeah. but also bringing like, in some some theatrical stuff that we'll get into, you know, yeah, kind of yeah. as we move forward. There, there's just I a mean, lot of elements here that that their particular configuration of feels unique to me. If this album had come out in the early to mid '90s, which it never would for reasons that we've talked about before with, you know, things like the post-grunge uh, era in metal and all that sort of thing, you know, you couldn't, it would be death to release an album like this at that time because everybody would have just immediately dismissed it as, the, oh, that's last decade, man. Um, but if it had, I think I personally might have appreciated it more um, and that's not to say we'll get into it, but you know, I'm generally favorable on this album, but I think I might have appreciated it more because of it having that combination of old school thrash and yes, these new elements that they're bringing in. I think the the issue is that I respect them doing that, but they are far from the only band doing that these days. Um, and if I had one 
overriding criticism of this album, it's that very little of it surprised me. The vast majority of this album, it was good, but also pretty much entirely predictable. Um, and, you know, quite often I, I, that's not what I'm looking for. Uh, sometimes it is, you know, I admit, but sort of in this case, I was a little disappointed because they clearly could do more. You know, they, they clearly bring it, are willing to bring in these other influences. Uh, and I kind of wish that they'd done that a little bit more on this album. But we can get into that when we talk when we talk about like track by track. Yeah, and, um, and what I'll say to that, and, and I think you'll find the documentary interesting, is it sounds like this is the album where they're starting to bring more of that in, and they like the result. So maybe future albums yep. might, and yeah, they like the yeah. result. So I feel like this is this is uh, an evolutionary point in the sound of this band. Um, so I think that, I think what's to come if it's this core group again is something that you'll really kind of. Uh, will go in the direction that Dig. you were hoping that this album had a little bit more of. Uh, I also yeah. just want to say on the, off the top that I absolutely love John Keeble's vocal style. So I'm just saying that right off the top. I like this. This is an instant win for me. Um, this, if this is, if this is in the heart of that goblin thrash, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of uh, spectrum of vocals, like this is what I prefer. And in this album right. just solidified it for me. It's like, this is, he's got just enough of the like low growls when he wants to do that. But the sort of screamy, uh, thrash metal vocals thing. That's me, man. I freaking love it. I, I absolutely love it. So his, I, uh, I wouldn't put this in goblin thrash. Actually this again, his vocal style is one of the things that to me helps make it sound like very traditional thrash because it feels, I mean, he's probably technically better than many of the many of the early thrash vocalists. Yeah, agreed. But he's got the same tone as many of the, you know, I'm thinking of things like early Slayer and Metallica and stuff. Um, you know, he's got that same kind of tone as those vocals. Yeah, as I say, probably technically better and maybe with a bit more range. Uh, but he does, I've talked about this before, you know, he kind of, he sounds like he is yelling, you know, with effort at you, which is my preferred style of that kind uh -huh. of growl. So, you know, I wouldn't say that it's my favorite style, but I, I did dig it and I thought it suited the music to a T. So let's have a look at the album. It's, uh, yeah, released last, I was going to say this year, haha, last year, sorry, 2020. <laughs> 2020 has ended, finally. I must remember that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 10 songs, 51 minutes long. So on the long side, for a thrash album, but not too long, I don't think. Yeah, agreed. And uh, I'll be interested to hear if you think there was a song or two that they could have taken off this album. There's really only one in my mind that uh, that I felt like maybe they could have okay. uh, that, that I could have done without. But then actually listening to the documentary piece about it, uh, it made me appreciate the song more. So um, sound wise, I will say it's a really, really beautifully produced and engineered album. Like the the tones and the sounds and everything on it, just the, the literal sound of the instruments is great. Like really, really great. Agreed. Sort of uh, Andy Sneap quality, I suppose you might say. It doesn't sound like an Andy Sneap no, album. No, it definitely You know how doesn't. Sneap has that ability to, you can hear every single instrument, yeah. but you can also get the effect of them being combined. I feel this has the same kind of quality to it i i agree and the guy who produced it is mike plotnikoff who i'll just give you a few of the albums that he's produced over the years he's been around for quite a while uh he was the 
he worked on, he wasn't the producer, but he worked on My Chemical Romance's Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge. Uh, he worked on uh, ACDC Live. He worked on, uh, let's see, Saxon's Call to Arms, uh, Fear Factory. Uh, what album is that? Is it Gen Exus? Oh, yeah, yeah, Gen Exus, yeah. Yeah, he worked on that album. Yeah. Uh, he worked on, let's see, Nita Strauss's new album. That she plays guitar for uh, Alice Cooper, I think. And she just put out a solo album, Apocalyptica. Um, he did the last album with Warbringer. He's worked with All That Remains. Um, what else? So quite a wide range then, actually, as well. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't really know anything about him before. I'm always interested to, to, to see if there's, uh, like, who produced an album that I like, and then kind of going back to the discography and being like, wait, did they work with a bunch of other bands that I like too? And and uh, he's kind of all over the place. But yeah, I agree with you. The sound on this album is fantastic. And uh, it's always interesting when you get a producer who, like, you know, they seem to kind of come in two camps. You either get one who specializes in a certain genre, and you look at the their previous credits and they're all bands, you know, in this, in that or very similar genres. And that's clearly their thing and their groove. And then you get somebody like this, who's just all over the shop and has produced like a whole really wide variety. Okay, sure. They're all guitar based bands and stuff, but a really wide variety of styles and sub genres and stuff. I find that fascinating. Like, you know, how producers kind of get either, stuck in one groove maybe voluntarily or maybe not or they branch out and become this kind of not jack of all trades but really diverse styles so you wouldn't necessarily go oh yeah he's your man to produce a thrash album you know right and you kind of want i i mean obviously i haven't i haven't put out an album so but i in my head i would think that you you kind of would want someone that that could see and hear things that you won't because it's outside of your wheelhouse right and especially if you have that intention of bringing in other influences right. and you don't want something that just sounds like a straight traditional thrash album, right. then I could see the value they, then, yeah, in having a producer who's able to bring you or help you bring out those other influences in your songs. And just like, man, production and how many albums do we go back and visit where the production is just horrendous? And (laughs) it's just like, you can't, you cannot put enough emphasis on like good production to really represent for bands, especially bands where like, you know, they are amazing live. And then the album somehow captures the energy of what it's like to experience that band live like that. It's so easy to screw that up and so hard to actually make that. So yeah, shout out to uh, the production on this album. Andy Wallace in the nineties, his entire career was made because he was able to take bands like that and actually make records that sounded like those bands live. You know, I don't think anybody would necessarily point to him as a great audio engineer uh, or even of necessarily of much value to the songwriting from what I've gathered over the years. But what he can do is put a band in the studio and record an album that sounds like them live. And that, as you say, is a really fucking rare skill. Yep. I mean, when I think of Andy Sneap, I think of what he did for Saxon. Where, like, if you see Saxon play live, you're like, holy shit, this band is so freaking heavy live, and they have so much energy. And you listen to a lot of their older albums, and the production 
falls more like on the rock side than on the metal side. And it doesn't it doesn't give credence to how heavy Saxon can actually be in a lot of their older albums just from a production standpoint. Yeah, but the newer stuff that justice, he's done yeah. is like brutal. Um okay, well you want to jump into track by track here? Let's do it. Opening track, track one, Firepower Kills. love the song it's a great opening song from the sort of uh the way it kind of opens with like the the flash of either like jets firing overhead or a sort of missile firing and you get that machine gun riff you know to start with the with the drum roll there and then underneath the the riff the main riff starts bubbling up like just getting a little bit it almost starts with uh like disparate pieces and it starts to like put itself together and it just gets more tight and more tight and more tight over like the first 30 to 40 seconds of the song. I just freaking love that. I love the way this song comes in. I mean, it's very thrash, isn't it? I mean, that, totally that's one of do. the, uh, that is, you know, again, talking about the, the influences that opening a track like that, especially as the first track on the album is very thrash. And as you say, it sounds like disparate parts that kind of start to gel and come together, uh, you know, and then, and then you get that moment where the riff stops and you get the dual guitar Ugh. melodic flourish. Dude. That is straight out of the 80s. That's te- <laughs> to me, that feels very testament, the way this song yes. kind of comes yes. together. Um, because that- and, then it, and then it, you know, just sort of whacks yes, into dude. the main riff. And it is a proper... It's a standard sort of whack you around the head intro opening track, isn't it? Yes, but but also like there's a level of complexity in that riff, uh, and and the way that they I also love the way that they play it out different ways, uh, and they sort of play with the main riff, and they do that in a lot of the songs where it's like not exactly the same yeah. every time. I freaking love that. There's an element of like um, to go back to what you were saying about Black Label Society. There's an there's this kind of like tightness and looseness that they play with a lot in this band where it feels like in some ways almost improvisational but also there is clearly uh a blueprint you know behind it and i just like how they they do it gives it kind of this feel of like they're they're to me almost like a live feel right where they're they're kind of playing around with things a little bit and and they're um that main riff is just so freaking good um and the way that uh, Kivel talked about this in the documentary was we wanted to take the main riff and have it tech up 
and evolve over the course of the song because this song is about how modern firepower has just the the amount of casualty that it can now cause like and he's talking even historically about like when introducing like these giant machine guns into war and yeah. how that changed everything right and just the amount of destruction that those kind of things can cause and so the idea was to have the riff almost become more technical as it went along to sort of mirror this idea of uh of uh weapon technology you know continuing to evolve over time sort of thing yeah i can see that uh i think really i don't really see the looseness or don't hear the looseness that you're talking about like you i can hear the technical aspects and the tightness i don't really hear any loose playing in this not even deliberately loose in this particular track um i wouldn't i wouldn't say it sounds live to me just because of that extreme tightness of playing uh you know it's there's not a not a single beat or note wrong everything and when i say wrong you know what i mean it's yeah, yeah totally. pr- precisely you know it kind of some drummers uh you know get criticized for sounding like like machines and that's kind of what the guitars on this particular track especially sound like to me it almost sounds as if the guitars are being played mechanically because they're so precise and that's again not necessarily a bad thing For a track like this, you probably want that. But I'm not hearing that sort of live feel that you are. I may not even be articulating it right. It may just be their their style of playing or their pick style or something like that. You know what I mean? Where I it just it feels like there's a stylistic element there. Mm, Fair enough. That can that sort of ebbs and flows over the course of the song. Um, I will say that the lyric, yes, we aspire to a higher rate of fire is fucking great oh it's so <laughs> good that, dude that that made me laugh in a good way like when i <laughs> i was like okay you know my hat is off to you for yeah. that line <laughs> i like uh one of the lyrics he says if you thought we knew by now how this is all a waste in a government lab the best the brightest are locked in an arms race and so just this this idea of like the the arms race has just uh moved to the laboratory now right in yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. determining like well, different and it, ways and it to hasn't escalate. ended either right and that it never uh, and will it never will yeah. and that that is something that is a theme that gets repeated over you know just the fact that it, that there's this uh there's no dignity in well you talked about the themes of the album and that is absolutely one of them yeah you know it's i mean it's right there in the title the weapons of tomorrow but yeah. it's it's absolutely a theme that runs through the whole album yeah and obviously culminates in that the final track which we'll talk about when we get to it so let's talk about how this song ends which so this song has three sections yeah. right it's got the main song it's got the halftime middle eight and then it's got the coda which is pretty thrashy you know that it, that is kind of that's we're used to that from traditional thrash bands but it occurred to me as i was listening to this because they do this several times and i yep. was thinking you don't like it when typo negative does that but, <laughs> but i'm sure you do like it here <laughs> that is a great point and here's the difference for me here and it's funny because in the documentary they'll talk about how like sometimes it's a part of an old song that they brought in or a riff that they didn't know what to do with and they or they started out with something thinking that it was the sort of main verse riff but they made it the intro and the outro riff or something like that and so it's it's kind of interesting to hear how they put that together. The thing that bothers me about uh typo negative or even like some choices by by bands who are just kind of experimenting with it the the one that comes to mind um 
for me that took me right out of the song was uh, off of Metallica's new album, Halo on Fire. I feel like for the first two thirds of that song, it's one of the greatest Metallica songs ever written. And then it goes in a direction that just completely ruins the song for me. Um, and I almost like that. I'm almost compelled to just listen to the first two thirds of that song because the, that part is so good. But the thing about typo negative is I feel like some of the choices that they make, they're so far away from where the song started that I can't bridge the gap. And what I feel like, at least for me to my ears that this band does is they, there is a boundary that they're playing within that they don't right. stray too far from what the overall uh, sort of rhythmic theme of the song was so that when they, when they throw in a new riff or something like, I always feel like there's enough of a connection to it. maybe not every time, but I feel like they keep it, they keep the train on the tracks for me. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. I, I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of what I said at the start is one of my criticisms of the album in a way, but I, I can see the difference and why you would yeah like prefer one over the other. It just made me laugh when I was I was making my notes and I thought, hang on a minute, this is exactly what Brian said he doesn't like. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, here, I love it. And I especially love it in this first song because I feel like the, the <laughs> finality of how this one ends, you know, in a searing flash a of light, yeah. the yeah. future looks so bright. I mean, what a freaking great thing. I, I, I love a lot of Keeble's lyrics and I love them both because he's trying to bring in a, a lot of themes like if, in a serious way, but I also love them because there's a little bit of King Diamond in this dude and I like it. Oh, and um, He is a good lyricist. Yeah. I will give him absolute props for that. These are some really, really good, you know, because we have done some albums where the lyrics are a bit fucking dodgy. Sure. And, well, and uh, these are not. These are good lyrics. And he wants to, a, a lot of times, like e even just within the song, like not worrying about connecting it to the larger theme, like he wants to tell a story in almost every song. And so I like that he's approaching it from that way and... Um, but also just his lyrical ability, yeah, you know, some of the sure. rhymes and the rhythms that he chooses, some of the metaphors and, you know, the, the literal quality of the writing of his lyrics is really good, I feel. Oh, yeah. He gets nerdy about it. And when you see him like get in the studio, like talking about like his his approach to some of these lyrics, it's fun to watch because you could tell he's he gets super nerdy about it. Um, <laughs> well, and speaking of that, let's jump into song number two. All right. So that's the black hand reaches out. This song thematically is about the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and the uh, sort yes. of secret society, the Black Hand. And um, 
So clearly, uh, you've got the historical elements there that he's pulling on that he really finds interesting and and bringing them in. It has the sort of, you know, it's loosely tied to the theme of the overall album, right? Because now we're talking about, you know, secret assassinations and stuff like that. The intro to this song, the way it first starts, uh, feels like Sweating Bullets from Megadeth to me. It has that that sort of um, oh, right, yeah. uh, intro, but then it kicks into a riff that to me feels like early Exodus, like that that sort of uh, groovy riff that they have here. I lo- this is one of my favorite riffs on the album. Um, and then they, they throw those like giddy up chugs in in the delivery of that main riff, um, like on every other one. So I just yeah. lo- I love those little things that they're kind of playing with there, but it's got a great groove to it. Uh, I love the shouted "taking control," you know that kind of that to me is it, it, like old school thrash, and I love it. Yeah. Um, and I also like how they they transition into the different parts of the songs here because this is another song that has like different pieces to it. Um, but I really like the I, I just I like this as a contrast to the first song in terms of the groove, whereas the first one was very, you know, speed thrash. This yeah. one is more like, uh, you know, brutal riff, but great sort of catchy groovy, you know, rhythm to it. And I just like, I like this as a one, two punch for this album. Yeah. It absolutely works like that. It is, uh, I've pointed this out before. There are a lot of, a lot of good albums good heavy albums i mean start with something that either you know sort of slaps you around the face uh because it's really really heavy or something a bit sort of epic and dramatic and then track two is the catchy one there's loads of albums like that where track one isn't necessarily the track that you'd play to somebody if you wanted to kind of make them a convert that's track two. That's where you get into the groove and you get a catchy song. And this one absolutely delivers on that. This is one of my favorite tracks on the album. Um, not just the riff, like the entire track, I think is is really, really good. Catchy, groovy. It's got a good chorus. I like the vocal structure within the chorus, the shouted yep. refrain that you mentioned, but also how the second section comes in halfway through the line before when he's going like the the black hand reaches out and then yep. you know in with the beat love that so uh, yeah really good song for this i also like that you know between this first song and the second song you're really kind of starting to see what a great drummer carlos cruz is yes. and you know in in these first and we'll talk about the third song in a second but what those first three songs play to different fields and yeah. you really start to see a lot of he what he's doing. All. Yeah, his symbol work is freaking yeah. fantastic. Dude. <laughs> you could see that on that video. Yeah, that like all, uh, just post here. Okay, so good. Before we get onto the drum shop, and let's talk about the solos because I, I, I was surprised how much I liked some of the solos on this album. I was expecting that it would just be a hundred percent fret wanking throughout the whole thing. <laughs> uh, and there is some of that, no question. There is, you know, plenty of fret wanking going on. But even those have a clear structure and yeah. some melody to them. And some of the solos are downright tuneful and bluesy. Agreed. Um, and that seems to be, having watched one or two videos of them playing, like music videos and stuff, it seems to be that 
uh which one was it again chase becker the long-haired guy is the he is the blistering you know he's your guy (laughs) to go to for that and then adam carroll the short-haired guy with the gibson he's playing your more sort of bluesy tuneful solos i mean they clearly both can play sure like monsters um but you know it seems that that's their individual styles and yeah i say i was surprised at how much i liked some of the solos including i mention it here because i think the solos on this track are really really good they're really good the first like mini solo is freaking tonally perfect for the groove and the tone of the song like i just I, i i love the way that it fits in i also love how this band is constantly like escalating the rhythm underneath the solo so that you can listen to this like it makes the solo more interesting because they're not just yeah. repeating the same thing over and over under the solo the the rhythm under the solo is changing in a lot of cases it's getting faster and it's escalating or it's a riff it builds that's pl- as the solo builds yeah, yeah and the riff is played slightly differently each time and stuff like that and so like that together really makes the solos sing in a lot of in a lot of ways where i think a lot of bands are just they have a rhythm that goes under the solo and they just repeat 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 and so and that's how you wind up with boring solos. exactly you know it's yeah this is see to me this is basic songwriting and i'm amazed that so many bands don't do it uh but you're right because i hadn't even thought about that in relation to this band but you're absolutely right that too many bands don't do it and maybe that is why to me, these sound like better solos because it's just more what I expect from somebody who, you know, sits down and takes care to write a song. <laughs> yeah, well, it's almost like I feel with a lot of bands, like when the solo comes on, it's when everybody else takes a break. And what I like right. about yeah, this, yeah, yeah. you know, this, but it puts so much pressure then on the soloist to really not fall into what, you know, what you despise, which is just the kind of noodling um in those situations but i love when a band is like no well but how does this serve the song and how is the rhythm serving the song at this point in time and let's play with that too and like um as the rhythm guitarist it gives you something to do too so that you're not just sort of playing the same thing over and over again while you know while the other one steps into the limelight so yeah i do like that and i think the solos in the song are freaking great I also like how both of the first two songs end really abruptly on vocal shouts. You know, that's, yeah. I've said before, I'm a, I'm a sucker for that, and I do like it here as well. Track three, then, is Crushed Beneath the Tracks. This is the one that I sent you a uh, I sent you a video 
It, I actually found it on the on the lyrics page <laughs> for this song. Uh, you know, from the lyrics page, there is a link to yeah this video on YouTube of Carlos playing a, doing a playthrough of this track, and it is great. You know, as you say, you can see that his symbol work is absolutely excellent, like second to none, superb stuff. I think um, what I also loved about watching that video is you can tell how much he likes playing the song. Oh yes, you know a yeah, lot I mean, of times he's literally singing along at points. Yeah, yeah, like a lot of times it is. It's a very technical experience for the drummer, especially during those playthroughs, right? Because they want to play everything perfect, and you can see from the beginning that he's just in the groove of this song. Yeah, and he's he into it. Is loving it? Like he he's mouthing some of the you know shouted chorus refrains and stuff like that. I just uh, I love uh, watching him, and when you watch the documentary, like listening to him talk about. Um, Putting some of these songs together is is really fun too. But obviously, this this song is about uh, techno. Like the the inju- the image that it conjures is just like the the Terminator scene of like the tank treads rolling over skulls and <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. Just this idea of like technology grinding forward and like once you let it loose. And they talk about some of this too. Like once once you unleash things like AI and stuff like that. Like it's it's the whole like. Uh, Jurassic Park thing of like you 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 didn't stop to think if you should only that you could right and then you know that that this technology just continues to be developed and continues to um, sort of crush everything in its wake um, and that feel of the riff is very much this sort of grinding oh yeah it's a really nice chugging plotting. riff that evokes the title doesn't it yeah yeah um, I like kind of the cemetery gates ending of the song where you get sort of the wailing (laughs) guitars as this sort of machine is, is sort of, uh, you know, just, just plodding off into the distance. You, you hear those sort of wailing guitars. I love that. I thought that was really thought about the cemetery gates comparison, but you're absolutely, now that you've said it. Yeah. It's exactly that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Which is also, yeah, which I like it. It is good. I mean, this is, you know, that I don't like fade outs to end, but I'll, I'll allow this one because, yeah, it puts me in mind of the war machine sort of relentlessly chugging off into the distance, having laid waste to, you know, where you're standing. Now it just carries on uh, with its reign of destruction off somewhere else. So I think it really works for this track. Yeah. And his final uh, crush is like key rush, like he, the way he says crush <laughs> at the end. He just like really uh, sort of uh, sort of dives into that. But I do. I do like this is a good example, right? Because as you said, like you're not a big fan of the fade out um, ending of songs, but if if lyrically and thematically, it fits. It yeah. fits, right? Which again, that is the job of uh, of the songwriters to to create a reason for why that might fade like that, right? And in this case, it feels like it fits, and so it's not as um, disappointing as songs that just like don't know how to end. This song is purposefully right. meant not to end because it is about yeah. the evolution that just keeps on going and destroying everything. Yeah, I mean the lyrics. When I read the lyrics, I was like, "Is this a Fear Factory album?" It's got, <laughs> <laughs> it does have that sort of, as you say, Terminator esque, almost sci fi feel to it. But they are again good lyrics, and I. This is another one where I really like the solos. Uh, I actually kind of wish there's a, the second solo in this finishes before his vocals kick in for that final repeated chorus. And I kind of wish it didn't. It was like, you know, I wish that the solo had carried on under his vocals. I think that yeah. would have really added to this song. So it's a fine song. It's, you know, sure. it's not one of my favorites on the album, but yeah, this is a fine song. And 
the lyrics and music are a really, really good fit. There is a which, song, you know, which is uh, the something to be said for that. There's a song on here where the solo does continue under his lyrics, and I made a note of it, so I'll see it whenever it comes up in it. But it reminded me of like that's how Suicidal Tendencies and Rocky used to play, where he would just keep right. playing under Mike Muir's uh, vocals there, and and uh, especially like long notes and stuff like that that I think really serve that well. But well, um, Paradise Lost do it. You know, their entire style is that Greg just keeps playing. He's yep. just constantly playing, yeah. you know, solo bits throughout the entire song. Um, so, yeah, you know, it can really, it can be really effective uh, when used well. So I'd say I, I wish they'd done it here, but it's still, it's still a good song. It's a fine song. Uh, and then track four, the first big proggy number, it's Defiance of Fate. Seven minute epic. Yeah. Great melody. And this was a song in the documentary where they talked about how this was kind of something they hadn't done before. This sort of like oh, really? soft intro. Um and it made him have to approach vocally the song differently than he normally approaches songs because this this whole like first half of the song is different than what they would normally do. And I think this one was written by uh, Carlos, if I'm not mistaken. And he kind of came with this idea. And so this was like a challenge for John Keeble to think about like, okay, well, how am I going to approach this song now to to kind of fit what he's trying to do? Um, and what he talked about was in the first half of the song. So, so uh, thematically, this song is about um, sort of mental illness and, and being, you know, fading out in the first half of the song, sort of being consumed by despair in the first half of the song, but then sort of rising up against it, refusing to, you know, having a turning point and sort of refusing to, uh, you know, fall victim to that and, and sort of finding new purpose and new meaning. And so there's two kind of very distinct halves to this song. And he talked about how in the first half, he kind of has this almost like distant black metal delivery is how he described it to the vocals. And then the second half of the song is very much like his normal style um, that he delivers vocals in, but just how that was something that they had to uh, really think about how to approach. They cited Bathory as an influence on this song. Um, 
there's a lot of good uh, name drops in that documentary, by the way, of like bands that they love and take influence from and stuff like that. Um, but like this song is sort of like the first four minutes and then the final three minutes. The, that's how this song kind of fits together. And I, I really like the way this song is structured. It's so if Carlos wrote this, I mean, I'm going to out him then as a maiden fan because <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that, of course, but you know, this, the intro and the first section of this just sounds so maiden to me. Uh, and maybe even a bit of Halloween, but then Halloween, of course, were massively influenced by Maiden. Yep. Um, I I wish he had gone that Keevil had gone with clean vocals for yeah. this first section here for the clean guitar bits because we know he can do it because he does it on the final track and he sounds fine. He's got a perfectly fine, just normal voice. Uh, but for some reason, he doesn't do it here, and I I don't think it works. Uh, I I don't. I mean, yeah, I can kind of see the sort of lights, as you say, sort of echoing black metal comparisons, but it just doesn't, for this track, it doesn't work for me. I really wish, even if he's not confident about singing, you know, just doing them as spoken, rhythmically spoken bits, it's Sprechgesang, uh, I, I wish he'd gone for that instead, because I think that would have worked. It really put me off the first part of this track, which is a shame. Um, and then <laughs> when the the electric bits, uh, you know, when they get, when the distortion cr- kicks in on the guitars that is so fade to black oh my goodness <laughs> that riff it's just like oh somebody's a fan of fade to black um it, it's okay this track it's like it's got a nice middle eight the solo's good again the lyrics are nice it all works but again there is nothing it's seven minutes long and there is not a thing in those seven minutes that i wasn't expecting um and that for a track that's so long that was disappointing for me again really good lyrics again you know quality stuff um but yeah this was actually i wouldn't say you know i'd want to strike it from the album or something but this was a disappointment for me i was hoping for more it may not surprise you to know this is one of my uh, favorite songs on the album so uh <laughs> I find it to be very well executed, even if uh, there are clearly some influences that that are going on here. And I think hearing the story behind it made me, you know, appreciate it even more because he, because of the fact that he's sort of stretching in this first half of the song. Sure. Um, yeah. But I love that the whole turn of like, you know, the the a silent dark at the end of every road, a silent dark. Now the silence calls me home. And then the turn is, but will I lay down as my life passes by or will I raise up my fist to the sky? I will not go silently into the dark. My flame will burn brighter than all the stars. And um, I think the emotion that he delivers that with, especially through the turn and through the second part of the song, that final three minutes, is really powerful. Mm. And if even if the first part of the song wasn't wasn't sort of unique uh the the sort of way that it comes together emotionally i think towards the end of the song is really powerful for me so i i really liked it and i love the the sort of triumph over over the dark theme that this song has so it uh it definitely resonated with me pretty well Sure. Uh, like I say, I really like the lyrics. I think they are really a set of really good lyrics. Uh, I just, the, for me, the song as a whole just didn't really, didn't achieve what I think they were trying to trying to achieve. Um, but I'm pretty sure the next track did. So <laughs> the next track is track five, Unraveling. 
which from a thematic standpoint is the exact opposite of the song that we <laughs> that we just heard where oh, musically it's pretty much the exact opposite as well <laughs> totally yeah and he mentioned that that uh, both of those things one that um you know if you were worried on the previous song that oh these guys have gone soft or they're you know this is the direction that they're going in coming back with this song which is a very aggressive um you know, brutal song right afterwards kind of resets in terms of like, nope, we're we're all still here. All the stuff that you like is is still here. And then thematically, this idea of unraveling, this idea of like someone being consumed by mental illness and and not triumphing over it is the exact opposite of um the previous song where it was where it was sort of uh you know finding a way out in this one it's it doesn't end well. And so, um, not to mention like the vocal style in this one is very, uh, super fast vocals, um, super fast riff. And there's a part about two minutes into the song where that riff, dude, such a sinister riff and the bass is kind of snapping and he's got like this, uh, layered scream underneath it that is really... You know, it kind of starts, and then the next part starts, and the next part starts, and the next part starts. It's really, really good, done to great effect, I think. So, um, yeah, as in terms of where this is placed on the album, I think this is a great follow up to song four. Yeah, it's the perfect placement for it. Yeah, as you say, kind of following an epic track with uh, a palette cleanser. You yeah, know, a really sort of hard, fast, and quite short track to just kind of reset things um uh yeah you can really hear the bass pounding in this one which i like i appreciate the fact that it that, see this track to me does achieve what we were talking about uh, earlier in terms of it doesn't sound mechanical it doesn't sound even though it is really really fast sure. and i'm sure very very difficult to play <laughs> like, no question there but it doesn't sound like they are lab technicians playing the guitars do you know what i mean yeah, uh, it sounds like it's got more just sort of energy and a bit of chaos behind it, which I really like. Uh, and you can really hear that with the bass, just like you can almost hear the strings flapping around on the keyboard. It's great. Uh, everybody's playing at full speed until we get to the end with that sort of uh, halftime coda. Uh, and then again, no messing around with the end, you know, another shouted vocal to bring things to a close. It's a really good track. And yeah, as you say, perfectly placed on the album to be that palate cleanser after the the proggy epic beforehand. Yeah. And I feel like, uh, Tom Araya esque early Slayer. Oh yeah. Speed yeah, yeah. delivery of vocals here where it's almost yeah, like it the, too, he's almost the, losing control of it because it's too, it's so fast, right? It's so fast. He can yeah. barely keep up. Yeah. Is it the unrelenting fury, unrelenting rage section? I think when he first does that and that's yeah, that real, double time like okay now you have to shout this as fast as you physically totally can. <laughs> do and the cool thing is like we're five songs in and this is the first time he's done that on this entire album right so True. so yeah. we're getting something you know even though it is a palate cleanser we're also getting something completely different from all the other songs in here um i i, I like it this is a this is a as you said the perfect place for this song and you we talk about that sometimes about like song placement choice on an album and why it's so important and like this is a great this is a great palate cleanser after number four and also because of the song that comes after it well right let hold that thought because yeah this is it's the perfect track to follow you know uh again as we said the big epic track beforehand um 
The next track, so let's have a listen to track six. That's Heart of Darkness. think this is badly placed i think the placement of this song is kind of the big misstep of this album as a whole uh, because it's it's another epic it's seven another seven minutes and there is only one short track between it and the previous epic and i i think that's a mistake i reckon they should have swapped this with track seven the track afterwards power unsurpassed so that you got two palette cleanser tracks for want of a better word in between the two big epics, you know? Um, and part of the reason why that makes me sad is because I love this track. This is one of my favorites on the album. I ab- this is way better than Defiance of Fate for me. Um, it's like taken in isolation, apart from its placement. Like, yeah, this is a contender for best track on the album. It is hard. It's heavy. It's got some great riffs and hooks. It has some of the best lyrics on the album, in my opinion. Yep. Um, I really, really like it, but its placement, I, I kind of, like, I'm still recovering. I haven't recovered yet <laughs> from the previous <laughs> seven-minute epic. Do you know what I mean? And then they hit you with this one again, and you're like, oh, God almighty. But listening to it, like I say, in isolation, I absolutely love it. You've got that atmospheric intro with the bass melody and the roaring wind and the clean guitars. Yeah. You've got a sort of quasi black metal blast beat riff where the drums are just going absolutely mad. Um, the verse has got this crazy bass riff going on underneath while the Amazing. guitars are still doing this sort of black metal thing. Like this is, I'm, I talked about, you know, track surprising me. This track surprised me. I would not have expected this song based on what I had heard so far on the album. And in addition to that, it's a really good song. Good solos, good middle eight, good construction, all of it. It's, yeah, as I say, really, really good song. I just wish that it was placed elsewhere on the album. This is the bass's time to shine on this album. This mm. particular song, is this, it, it is where the bass steps into the spotlight. Now, it's interesting that you said that... that uh, one song wasn't enough of a palate cleanser for this one because keep in mind, from my perspective, they nailed it on song four with Defiance right, yeah. of Fate, right? And then we get a little bit of this uh, quick palate cleanser, and then we're taking another crack at the the seven minute long song. So I'm here for it, right? I'm like, and especially the way this one opens with the bass, I love bass. Uh, it feels very different to me than um, the previous one 
than uh, Defiance of Fate. And oh, it so, is, yeah. It's a very different approach, yeah. So just the way we're starting, but in the documentary, um, what they talk about is that uh, because this song is based on on the novel, then um, the idea was that this opening bass line was supposed to kind of feel like the the twisting and turning trip down the river. Yeah. And so he... Uh, Keyvolt showed to the bass player um, uh, Apocalypse Now and some other movies and said, like, make your make your bass line feel like the river sort of thing. And I think you get that. You sort of get this very foreboding uh, journey that is starting and uh, in, into the unknown sort of sort of thing is is this feel that you get at, at the beginning of the song, which I think is really really interesting um as you said the the bass under the main verse is just absolutely freaking awesome the lyrics are super dark um when he talks about peering into the darkness means to face the horror and he says the horror i I love the way he delivers the horror um then of course things pick up there's a, a very proggy element to the song um but also like death metal and thrash metal like it's got a great a great sort of mix of ingredients there and uh and I really like it, but I totally see your point about like if the if Defiance of Fate didn't do something for you, then maybe having two songs in between. But then again, you've got three seven minute songs on this album, and so it, there's that consideration too, right? But I think with your suggestion, it still would have been all three of them spaced out well enough so that it well, and one like of them is the final either. track, which I feel right. like you always you always get a pass. Like on the final, if you if your final track, if you want to make that seven, ten, fifteen minutes long, that's kind of it. It, it lives separate to the rest of the album just because it's the final track. So I don't. I mean, you're right. It is the third seven minute song, but I feel like you just kind of get away with it because it's the final song. Um, yeah, as I say, I just I think this is such for me. This is such a better track than Defiance of Fate. Uh, obviously the literary references and all that help. And yes, his Marlon Brando impression going, the horror. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Very good. Which again, Um, goes back to this idea of the, the theatrical element of this band that I really appreciate. And, and there's a bit of King Diamond and Merciful Fate, you know, in, in some of what is happening here. And I, I do dig that because there's the, the sort of um, emphasis on story but also the theatrics that I really that I wouldn't expect from an album in the thrash category like that. You know what I mean? Like that's sure, not yeah. that that's a nice little element that I really appreciate. Well, and you want to talk about sort of deliberate song construction and you know sort of being careful about how they build the songs. You've got that quasi black metal bit at the start of the track, uh, which is just instrumental. But then that same bit is used at the end, and that's what the final set of lyrics go over. The same, the ending vocals go over that exact same right. black metal riff. Uh, and it even sort of, there are two parts to that section. You've got the, the, the first section where the guitars are just going full on with the rhythm, and then the second part where the guitars are playing a slight melody ringing out over uh, the same basic chord structure, and even that repeats again at the end. And that's a really nice touch because what you have then is an elliptical song structure, but without complete repetition because the lyrics, the vocals are done in a very different uh, rhythm and tempo to the rest of the track. So it sounds different, 
but it also sounds the same. And that, again, is that's clever songwriting because it makes it feel like you're coming home at the end of the song, which is always a good feeling, but without being repetitive. It's really nice. Yep. Uh, so let's move on then to track seven, Power Unsurpassed. get uh the disposable heroes intro on this oh, one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um thematically this song is about sort of the uh imagine if one narcissistic power hungry person had access to a nuclear arsenal <laughs> can't imagine thing. who they're talking about yeah uh so it, that that's kind of the theme and just the allure of like having all that power right and and looking for a excuse to use it and without thinking of what the consequences of that sort of thing are and so the the lyrics are kind of all about that violence is addiction killing is device always on watch with satellite eyes with unsurpassed power rain fire from the skies just this idea of like in in modern times now especially how easy it is to um wage war with the push of a button sort of thing yeah yeah so this is the one that i like I said, that I think they should have placed after Unraveling and before Heart of Darkness, because I think it would have fitted well there, because the tempo and the rhythm of this are different enough to Unraveling that it wouldn't sound the same, but it is still a sort of shorter and lighter song than those big epics. Um, that said, I don't think this is as good a song as Unraveling. Uh, you've got... The the one thing I like about it, and it's just a tiny little thing, is in the first line of the chorus, you've got that offbeat rhythm where at the point where he sings age has sings the old age has died, but the way the old age has died, that kind of rhythm. That's nice. You get a jump on the on the four four beat before it returns to the final beat. That's just a nice sort of, you know, unexpected little touch. But the rest of it. I mean, if we were going to talk about one track that maybe had to come off the album, it might be this one for me. It's it's fine, but it's not really anything more than fine. This was the song I made the notes that it reminded me of Rocky from Suicidal Tendencies, like the guitars that kind of follow oh, right. the vocals, yeah, yeah. you yeah. know, in terms of the solo. And uh, uh, I agree this isn't like one of my top songs on the album, but I did like it. And it's got another... Um, you know, about halfway through the song, a killer kind of breakdown. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, I would say this song is straight ahead compared to yeah, some true. of the twists and turns that some of the other songs take. True. But then so was unraveling. I just felt that that achieved that straight ahead, you know, blast better. Yeah. Well, and also unraveling is a half a minute shorter. 
so maybe it could also be said that this song you know maybe if if it was a little bit tighter um maybe would would have felt uh you know a little bit different but uh maybe yeah but yeah, I All would right. say uh, I, I like this song. Uh, I like that that sort of rocky guitar approach to uh, to the solos here. You know, playing underneath the vocals and stuff like that. Um, so I dig it. All right. Well, let's move on then to track eight, "Outer Reaches." another song that has just a killer you know turn in the middle of the song absolutely crushing the theme of this one is sort of leaving a a destroyed world behind and kind of going into space and and not knowing what you're going to find um you know and when he screams into the black hole and then the freaking riff kicks in dude just that's the best part of the song. Dude. Yeah, like two minutes. So 50. good. Oh, you've got that sort of groovy, grungy riff. Oh, dun, my dun, God. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that for me, that's the stuff. Honestly, the rest of this song, it's, again, it's fine, uh, but it, but nothing more than that. Um, you know, maybe that's down to its placement. I don't know. Also, I, <laughs> I, the first time I heard the intro, I was like, oh, Black Album. Uh and I, I got the tracks mixed up and because of the lyrical content, I thought, oh, well, this is a ripoff of uh, Through the Never. But then, of course, when I re-listened, I was like, oh, no, no, wait, that intro is sad but true, not Through the Never. But the lyrics are, and so it just, I, I've never, I can't, I know it's not fair. I know that they're not the same, but my first impression was that this was basically a tribute to Through the Never and I just can't shake it as a result. And Through the Never is not, one of my favorite tracks no. it's okay but it's not one of my like favorite tracks on the black album um, um so maybe that doesn't sort of predispose me well towards this track i don't know i like the solo what I like about the little the baseline uh you know noodling at the end yes yes that too and <laughs> uh, the solo kind of circles and climbs that's nice you know with this it just seems to it feels like it's going up and up and up and up and up i like that uh and then yes down into the black hole and as i say that sort of groove dude riff. all that's i could good. think about was imagine seeing this song live when they get oh, to that part imagine that yeah, yeah imagine holy all the heads. lord all the necks snapping <laughs> oh my god i just can't even imagine the pit that would explode um that that's like that song makes me excited to see them live 
You yeah, good stuff. It. But, and it fits like thematically, <laughs> right? Because we've already talked in several oh, songs sure, yeah. throughout this album about like uh, destroying the world with technology. So it would make sense at some point you got to figure out how to get out of here and who knows what you're going to find when you get out there. Yeah, although I, I did have to laugh at the line, science brought us ruin, science brought us death, and now our starship brings rebirth. Like, well, how do you think you built the starship, dude? Well, and I, I almost see this as uh, him speaking from the standpoint of like the people on the ship in thinking that and then what they find is death. <laughs> like, So it's yeah, almost well, like, maybe, yeah, yeah we ruin the world and we jump on our starship and we escape and now we go through the black hole and now, no, it's not going to end well for any of us um, sort of thing. So I, that's just where I felt like it was it was going of like there is no escape. You, there is yeah. no escape from the consequences of what you've done. Um, <laughs> All right. Track nine then. Notre Dame, King of Fools. is literally about the first half of the song is about quasimodo and the second half of the song is about the the burning of the cathedral that happened in 2019 yeah yeah i mean the whole thing is about notre dame de paris yeah yep. uh it's it's literally the the novel and then the building um but they are really good lyrics really yeah, I was like really good put, a jo- good job of capturing those things who put a halloween song in the middle of this album at track number nine <laughs> um this song, like honestly, was is the only song that if I had to get rid of one song in the album, it would be this song. Not because it's a bad song, but just because I feel like it's so thematically different from almost everything that we've heard on this album that from a theme right. standpoint, I have trouble parsing it with the rest of this album. Um the song itself, I like, I love the the sort of clean guitar interlude that it has at about three minutes and 45 seconds. The riff after that is, is freaking brutal when it, because that's as the song transitions to talking about um, the fire at the cathedral. And so I, I prefer the second half of the song. I feel like it's stronger um, than the first one. This is another song that, that feels um, at least for the first, you know, two thirds of it, very theatrical, very uh, King Diamondy yeah. to me. Um, Halloween as well, and uh, I just, I just don't feel like it fits perfectly with the rest of what this album has going on. Uh, thematically, I would agree with you, but I wouldn't lose it because it's. I mean, the lyrics are the best part of this track for me. The music's fine, but it is the vocals and the lyrics that really sell it. Um, what I do appreciate is that you get that clean guitar intro, but then they don't 
try and fool you. Like you only get yeah. a couple of bars of it and then it immediately goes electric. And you're like, oh, okay, this is not going to be another seven minute epic. Thank goodness for that. You know, uh, <laughs> like the riff comes in too quickly for that. Um, what I do like musically about it is that really odd rhythm at the end. Uh, when you get to the bit about the church burning, uh, which I think I tried to count it and I'm sure I got this wrong, but I think it's in 15, 16 triplets, which is a really strange <laughs> time signature. Uh, but I really like it, you know, because just because it is unusual and strange, but it works really well with the lyrics. You know, it's got that kind of unsettled, off balance, slightly chaotic feeling to it, uh, but also relentless. Um, which I think fits really well with those parts of the lyrics talking about the church burning. Uh, it's a nice sort of unsettling contrast to the rest of the song, if you like. And um, they worked on this song the the day that this was happening in 2019. Oh, wow, right. Um, so, like, it, there's a direct influence there on the song in terms of, like, this is what was going on on the news at the time. Wow, yeah. I mean, like I say, I, I, I agree with you that thematically it really doesn't belong with the rest of the album, but I do like the song primarily because of the lyrics, as I say, and so I, I wouldn't lose it. I think it's, uh, you know, there are other tracks that I would drop before this one. But let us move on then to final track, track 10, Glorious End. Has there ever been a more perfectly named closing song? <laughs> I mean, it's such a cliche to end an album like this, especially an album like this with an oh, oh, woe isn't war terrible song. But uh, it's a massive cliche. And we, we've done several albums on this show that have ended with exactly that sort of track at the end. But if you're going to do it, do it right. Bro, 10 and, out of 10. I mean, that's the, I, why this song is number 10, because it is a I, 10 out I, of 10 song. <laughs> I feel that this track absolutely nails that. If you're going to do that cliched song at the end, yeah, like I say, do it right. And they do here. This absolutely nails it. Oh, my God. There is so many things I love about this song. But the thing I keep coming back to is, first of all, the freaking riff in this song is for me the best song on the the best riff on the entire album it is so oh, wow. good and the way that he delivers the lyrics in the song are my favorite thing about this whole album when he screams my father my father just the whole conversation between father and son in this album how the son is psyching himself up to go into battle 
and having this conversation in his head with his father about their family legacy and what it means to be a soldier and what it means to die in battle and all that stuff. And him, and just the way he screams, you know, my father, my father, as he's responding back to him, dude, it's so good. I freaking, I cannot get enough of it. Like this song, if I was going to listen to one song from the album on repeat, it would be this song. I just absolutely oh, wow. love it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's another good melding of lyric and music as well. That's the other thing. It's another one that feels like a well-designed track musically because it starts with that sort of triumphal dual guitar call to arms, uh, and then it gets nice and heavy, good riff there. The lyrics are some of the best on the album. I think his <sighs> so lyrics good, are absolutely like this is, these are kind of worthy of Martin Welkier, in my opinion, really top quality lyrics. Uh, and the whole, I like the way that the whole song builds you up to think that it's going to be man of war. You know, you think that it, yes. this is, oh, okay. It's the glory of battle and an honorable death and all that. Well, fair enough. You know, we've heard plenty of tracks like that. Some great tracks out there that have those themes and the middle eight musically reinforces that in a way because it's got that kind of overall positive vibe. Yep. But then the solo guitar starts introducing a bit of atonality. And I feel like, and I hope that's deliberate because I felt like it sort of musically sets you up for what comes next, which is the fall, the reality that being one of thousands of anonymous soldiers sent to die in yep. a fucking trench is not glorious. It is not an honorable, glorious death at all. Uh, it's pretty fucking shit and horrible. And uh, yeah, just I feel like musically they follow that turn in the lyrics. Oh, so really, good, dude! Really well, yeah. Just the the where the escalating like charging into battle right before yeah the fall. Oh god, it's so good, dude! And then just him, the way he delivers. Tell me, Father, have you lied? This is no way for a soldier to die. W was there a meaning when I fell? Where is the glory? Where is the glory for me? And the freaking agony that he delivers that in as the soldier is literally dying in agony is like, man. Yeah. And perfect. at the same time, you've got, you've got that, that dual guitar harmony from oh. the start again, plays at the end, you know, like the call to arms or something. But now of course it has a completely different. Oh dude. It's meaning. so, it's so good. ironic. Um, and what a perfect circle to the first song on the album. Mm. Like just, to start with firepower kills, right? And the escalation and, and how the escalation of technology is literally taking everything that at one point you could say was glorious or, uh, or the integrity of, of battle or any of like, and just to have it end with the story of one soldier experiencing that firsthand. Yeah. The slaughter. Oh, dude. It's just like such a great, thematic way to end the album and uh i love it i love it as a closer i love it as just an absolute standout song on the album from a musical standpoint from a thematic standpoint from a lyrical standpoint like it 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 really felt like to me everything they were trying to do culminated with with this song and it has a little bit of everything well, and I feel part of the reason that it works so well is because it's a closer partly because of the length as i said you kind of get a free pass there but also 
because of the themes of the album and because of the way that this subverts some of the triumphalism of what could be seen as triumphalism in those lyrics. Um, it works because it's at the end. Like if this came halfway through the album, I don't think, especially now that we don't have, you know, two sides to an album or anything, I just sure. don't have it. Would I, I don't think it would have the impact. I don't think Agreed. it would be as good as it is. I think it's, it benefits. It's made stronger by the fact that it's the last track because of its placement at the end. I think that, you know, it couldn't, it wouldn't be as good a track put anywhere else, which might sound weird. No, it know, sounds, but makes perfect sense to me. And, and to me, it is like a, it's like you took the broad stroke that you painted with on the first song of this album and you zoomed into the story of one person for the final song in this album. Right. And, yeah. and to emphasize your example of the theme of this album. And so like that, that just really, really resonates with me. Um, and I find it super, super effective. Yeah, it is a really good closing track. Um, you know, does it make me want to go back to the start and listen to the album all over again? Maybe not, but I feel like, especially because it ends in feedback, I kind of feel like that wasn't necessarily the intention here. It was more about, as you said, bringing the album and the themes of the album to a close. And I think it achieves that. Absolutely. I think this whole album, overall, I think this whole album gets better as it goes. Like, uh, Black Hand reaches out. Like I said, he's one of my, that's a contender for favorite track. But apart from that, I think the second half of this album is generally much stronger than the first. Overall, you know, there's exceptions here and there. But overall, I just think it does get stronger as it goes along. Yeah, I, I can't say enough about how much every single listen to this album makes me enjoy it more. And I've listened to it a lot. And this week, I've listened to it a ton and um <laughs> even more <laughs> yeah and and watching the documentary which again is called the science of thrash and we'll put a link in the show notes to it uh is really cool to hear how these guys put their songs together how they're bringing different ideas to the table what they'll do is they'll talk about um the riff to this song and then just actually just play that riff and show you uh something about that so you actually get a sense for how they play guitar and and the way that Carlos is playing, who again is the drummer, but also a primary songwriter in the band, the way that he plays in his play style is very different from uh, Adam's play style. And when they're demonstrating things, you just tell they play guitar very differently. And it's kind of cool to see. And then to hear, um, you know, John Keeble's uh, explanation of like where he comes at it lyrically. I just love how nerdy he gets about it. And um, yeah, all of those things really click for me. So Warbringer really blown away that i had not had a better understanding of them previously but man uh, i am enjoying digging back into their back catalog because you can really see the evolution of where they're going now granted there were different members that came in and out of the band and stuff like that but it's really there is a trajectory there and it is very cool to see where they've gotten and um excited to see kind of where they're going and i cannot wait to try and get a chance to see these guys live so yeah, I'm heartened by what you said about how, uh, you know, this is the even compared to just their previous album, that this is an evolution and that it feels like they've sort of almost as if the band reset with the album prior to this and that they hopefully will continue evolving. Because, like I said, you know, this is a fine album and there are some some really good tracks on it, some that are not so great. You know, overall, it's a good album. I enjoyed it. But there isn't really anything on it 
that kind of that blew me away. You know, there's nothing like say uh, totalitarian terror, say from the um, creator. creator album that we did, which is just an absolute blow away track. Like that track pins your ears back and just you know, I love it. I still love it to this day. Um, there was nothing like that on this album. There was nothing that made me go fucking hell yes. Uh, but maybe there will be. Maybe if they are going to continue bringing those other influences in and being less of a straight pastiche trad thrash band, then maybe there will be. Uh, and so, yeah, I look forward to to finding out. Yeah, I mean, I would say most of the songs in this album made me go fuck yes uh, as I listen <laughs> to them. So this is definitely in heavy heavy rotation for me um, sure. right now. And uh, yeah, had I spent as much time with it toward the end of last year as I spent with the Havoc album, this could have been my number one album of the year. It is, it is that good for me. Um, so just uh, happy to have had the chance to really dig into it. It's great stuff. Awesome. All right. So, uh, let me go through the usual spiel. Um, give people the links, as we said earlier, the Facebook group, if you want to join in is at facebook.com slash group slash thrash it out. Uh, you can of course become a patron, support us on Patreon and help us keep the show going by going to patreon.com slash thrash it out. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, spread the word, rate us on iTunes and Google podcasts and all that sort of stuff. Um, and go to thrashedoutpodcast.com if you want to get in touch, that's got links to email and Twitter. Uh, and you can talk to us on social media or drop us an email or whatever. We get some lovely emails from listeners. Uh, and some nice tweets as well. It's always nice. But we do have one more episode. Well, we have several episodes coming this volume. So we've got another one to do uh, soon. Uh, the, so the next episode is going to be a regular episode. I'm going to make an album choice. And then after that, we are planning to have another guest. Uh, so if you are a patron, keep it and make sure that you check your email because it's the email that you have registered for Patreon that we use to contact the guests that we have on for our backstage pass episodes. So keep an eye out because we'll be randomly selecting one of our patrons to uh, appear on the show. Um, uh, yeah, but that, but that will be after the next episode. So, haha, my choice. I am for the next episode. I am going to choose a band that we've been threatening to do for a long time. And uh -oh. part of the reason that I have not done them is because I've swung back and forth on which album to do. Okay. Which which is a common problem for both of us, isn't it? You know, we've for both sure. had that issue. You know, we said famously earlier in this volume with Testament, part of the reason it took us so long was because we hadn't, we just couldn't decide which album to choose. Um, and that's kind of how I was about this band as well. But I have decided to go, to just be purely selfish and go with my personal favorite album. Uh, even though I'm pretty sure a lot of other fans of this band would choose other albums to talk about or would say that other albums are their favorite. It's my personal favorite. So we are going to do Fear Factory's second album, Demanufacture. Oh, okay. From, I think, 93, 94, something like that. Um, I don't know. I'll check when we actually come to do it. But yeah, this, I know a lot of people would probably choose Obsolete or maybe even one of the more recent albums. But Demanufacture is the album. It's the album that got me into Fear Factory, and it's the album that I of theirs that I continue to most listen to. Even though I do listen to, you know, their others as well. 
that's the one that I always go back to. So that is what we're going to do. Very excited about that. I am not, I have not been a humongous. I mean, obviously, I've heard that album, but I haven't. I'm not a huge Fear Factory fan, and my familiarity with their whole discography is spotty at best. Right, right. Okay, cool. All right, but I'm glad you have at least heard this album. That will be because uh, th- there have been quite a few albums, you know, this well, throughout the whole show, but especially this season where w- one of us has heard it and the other has never heard it before. So, well, uh, and you said what, 93? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so that was a college album for me. Uh, right, right. Yeah, and and we had a group of, that lived in our apartment with pretty eclectic tastes, and so that's where I, I listened to Ministry first. Was I had a roommate who was super into Ministry? Um, right, ninety four. I just looked it up. It was October ninety four. Yep, I would. That would have been my. Let's see, ninety two, ninety three. Oh wait, no, 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 no. Sorry, that's when it was recorded. <laughs> no, wow, it's later than I thought. This was actually ninety five. So I'd have been a junior. Yeah, released ninety five. Good lord! Well, actually, I might have been a senior. You said it was in the fall of ninety five. It got released. Uh, no, June. Okay, yeah. So it would have been it would have been the uh, summer after my uh, junior year. Oh, cool. Yeah, ninety five. Good lord! What was I doing then? I can't even remember. <laughs> Working in a design studio somewhere. I, like. I'll tell you what I was doing. <laughs> I was uh, I was staying. I went to college about a half an hour from my hometown, and I stayed there the whole summer after my junior year because I had gotten a job at the school library and my job in the summer was to come in and sit up in the library and there was a a school where a lot of people went to get their teaching uh, degrees and so I stayed in I worked in the educational resources part of the library and they kept the library open every day over the summer so I would work eight hours a day and maybe see one to two people the entire day come into the library I read that summer an entire novel a day for the whole summer. I would bring a book to work and read a book every day <laughs> that I was in the library. My mother-in-law would send me, and I used to read like uh, any type of mystery, but Agatha Christie, Patricia Cornwell. Uh, and I was literally reading a book a day at the library over that summer. It's pretty great. Fantastic. All right. Well, yeah, we can get more into that on the next episode. So that is it. Fear Factory, Demanufacture. Thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, keep thrashing. Take care.